0: Welcome to the Exploring Washington State Podcast. Here's your host, Scott Cowan. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Exploring Washington State Podcast. This is episode 221. Today my guest is Gary Campbell. Gary is the owner of Crane City Music. And Crane City Music specializes in providing Seattle hip-hop artists with premium vinyl records. Kind of a very niche thing that Gary's doing. It's really quite interesting. This is a really long episode, and so we've broken it up into two parts. So this is part one. Gary's uh, originally from Canada, uh, moved to Seattle for a job with Amazon, has an uh, extensive background in online technology um, in the video space. And uh, when he moved to the United States from Canada, he found hip-hop because he had moved to New York City, found hip-hop and found it to be a really American um, musical form. And something that he uh, immersed himself in in because he wasn't seeing that up in Canada. So as he moved to Seattle, he immersed himself in the Seattle hip-hop scene. And we're going to talk about all of that. So welcome to part one. Um, but before we get started, if you would, how about sharing this episode with somebody who might like to hear about Seattle hip-hop or about Washington State? Love it if you'd share that out with some friends. And if you would also leave us a review on whatever podcast uh, platform you listen to our show on, That would be great. If you have any feedback you want to give me directly, my email address podcast at explorewashingtonstate.com and I'll respond. So buckle up, sit down, enjoy, grab that beverage, and let's get started. All right. Well, welcome back to this episode of the Exploring Washington State Podcast. My guest today is Gary Campbell. Gary, I found Gary through the Sale Times. They did an article on Gary and his record label, the crane, crane city music. Gary, I'm going to just ask you a quick question. Crane city, was that a homage to all the cranes on the towers in Seattle?
1: Yeah. And, and (laughs) it it was, um, I will say in 2017 around the time that I was starting this project, um, crane city music started as a single album that was going to be a compilation of, um, hip hop artists from the Northwest. And, Uh, one of the working titles was sounds from crane city uh, because crane city was a term people started using around that time just to refer to Seattle because there were so many cranes yeah. all dotting our skyline. They were like redwoods everywhere. There was an artist that is on the compilation uh, named Du normal. And she is a Seattle rapper. Um, and she had said to me at one point at a show that, you know, these cranes were just, you know, like spr- sprouting up like trees everywhere and they were going to be part of our landscape for, Decades to come, and and right around that time, there was a, a cover story on the Seattle Times that said, "You know, welcome to Crane City" or something like that. And and I just started seeing this term show up a lot in in conversation as kind of a shorthand for Seattle. And as I said, the compilation was originally called uh, "Sounds from Crane City," and then as we evolved, uh, that became the name of the label instead of the name
0: of the album. Okay. Well, besides now we know the name. Now we know, now I know how. So give us a little background about you. Where, uh, what I know, this is what I know about you. Uh, you're originally from Toronto. I am. Okay. Um, I hope you're not a Blue Jays fan. That would make this conversation awkward, but you know, it's okay. No. Um, and you, you moved to Seattle. How many years ago did you move to Seattle now? 10. So,
1: so yeah, I, I, um, I'm from a small town called Brantford, which is actually the home of Wayne Gretzky. so Wayne Gretzky okay. was a was a, a big figure when I was young um he he was kind of the pride and joy of the our hometown okay. and and he of course at the time was winning Stanley Cups and he was suddenly the the greatest hockey player who'd ever lived. Um, well, he and, was. You know he, he grew up <laughs> you know a few blocks away from. Uh, my, my parents' house where I, where I grew up. And actually, my siblings, I have two brothers and a sister who are quite a bit older than me. And my brothers played, um, like, backyard baseball and things with Wayne Gretzky when he was young. Um, okay. All right. And uh, so so certainly the, the Wayne Gretzky shadow loomed large over Brantford growing up. <laughs> uh, and, and, and actually, it's funny. I was just back um, in Canada a couple of weeks ago And um, there's a Brantford Hall of Fame, um, which is a sporting hall of fame for great Canadian athletes and people in uh, sports. And not only is the lion's share of the museum dedicated to Wayne Gretzky, but my dad was a big figure in Canadian soccer in terms of starting uh, soccer leagues and so on in um, Ontario and in my hometown. And, okay. uh, consequently there's actually a small exhibit about my dad and his legacy. Um, he passed away 20 years ago, but he, um, he made a big mark in my hometown as well. And so there's a, there's an exhibit about all of his work, uh, in my hometown as well.
0: Okay. Wow. That's, yeah. that's, that's very cool. So I'm on, I'm on your website. Oh yeah. I'm going to, I'm just going to read it cause this is half the fun of it. It says, hi, I'm Gary Campbell, a Canadian designer and visual artist based in Seattle. That's true. I sp- I spent the the past twenty six years helping media brands, tech firms, and the music industry solve complex strategy, branding, and systems design challenges. Go on to say, I've made magazines, films, drawings, digital prototypes, education curriculum, paintings, ceramics, and more. What does that mean?
1: What <laughs> what is, what, is the, what mean? Like the what what have what, I done? So-
0: yeah. What have you, what have you done? I mean, what's, I mean, it goes on. You've, you've got your, sure. your, your named inventor on multiple patents. Um, yeah. what brought you, well, this is interesting when you were yeah. 18, you won a is it Glenhurst? Is that the yeah, name? Yeah. The Glenhurst car- art prize. Okay. And yeah, you were... it's
1: a, so when I was, um, yeah, when I was a kid, I was really ambitious. Like I think the Wayne Gretzky effect was, was looming large over a lot of us and, Um, you know, as a kid, I was really wanted to excel at things. And, um, I was actually when I was like a 12 or 13 years old, um, I was flagged uh, as were a number of kids in my hometown to go into kind of an experimental education program. So from, you know, 13 till 17, 18 years old, um, I, I didn't go to regular high school, I, okay. I was in this program where we as students sort of just taught each other how to do school. So there was no there was no real curriculum. The teachers were just there as kind of to help do the, the guideposts. But if we were learning about, uh, you know, the Civil War in the US, it, it was really up to you as a student to find something about that that was interesting to you and then learn about it and then teach it to the other students in the class. And so oh, wow. it was kind of a, a strange, just one of those things. When I look back on my high school years, I I realize, especially when I talk to other people, how uh, unusual my high school was. Because, yeah. as I said, like we we didn't, me and the sort of thirty odd students that were in this program, like we didn't have a structured um, education. So we were we were just kind of kind of let to our own devices to dig in on things, be curious discover what you wanted to discover, you know, write essays and, and things about that, we didn't have any regular tests. In this age of, you know, standardized testing in the US, it's, I, I had the opposite education, which was just sort of let these kids run around and hope they figure things out. Um, but what's, what's remarkable about this program is that, uh, I went through this program and I, I, a number of my classmates, obviously in high school that, I became quite close with them because it was really just a small group of us. And we, unlike most people whose high school experience is going to a huge school and interacting with a thousand students. Um, for me, high school was, was 30 of us in a room every day for four years, um, just kind of making stuff up. And, uh, but what (laughs) I want to say is that is that many of the people out of this program have gone on to be extremely successful. Um, I had this close friend, uh, Neil Legally, who uh, years ago moved to Sweden of all places, um, but he now makes uh, artificial eyes and he gives people sight who are blind and he went to school for engineering and he went to school for, for medicine and he learned how to make bioengineered eyes and, wow. and he just, it was just a big article about him because he's created, he's given eyesight back to 30 or 40 people. Who had been kind of previously
0: declared completely blind. Um, That's that's amazing.
1: And I got I I got to ask you this
0: question. This is the question that pops up to my brain, and I warned you about. You know, we're going to go off the rails. Of course, that's fine. So you've got thirty classmates, let's say, give or take, and you're kind of you're just you're. The structure is, if you were interested in something, you go learn about it, then you come back and you bring it back to the classroom, which is I think a very cool thing. Did you Did you go on to university after high school? I did. So how was the admissions process, though? I mean, you didn't go to this traditional school. So how did the university take that body of work? And
1: Oh, you know, it's, it's interesting. So what happened in this program is that we were all thrown back into sort of regular high school in our final year. And okay. um, I mean, I actually found school that last year of school was really a challenge um because in many ways we hadn't been well socialized the way a lot of people are (laughs) because Mm -hmm. we've been around the same people that we've been around since we were 12 it was like harry potter you know we were all around the same kids for years and years um and uh but the thing was is that we were all kind of terrors in our final year of high school because we, <laughs> you know, for me, I was like, what do you mean I got to do this test? What do you mean I got to go to class and like read this book and, and follow these rules. And, and I felt really bullied and pushed around in that final year of of high school because I, I had had so little in the way of restrictions. But at the same time, the flip side was also true in that, um, you know, I, I, was just like, I'm going to conquer high school. I was, I ran for school president and I won. And so Mm -hmm. I was the high school president in my final year of school. Um, I was one of the leads in the school play. Um, I ran the, the, the school arts journal. There was like a poetry arts journal and I was the editor in chief of that. Um, I ran the local, the, the, the high school art club. I played soccer and i was really you know i was i was one of the star you know midfielders on the team okay. um, and and the sense of like having to kind of do it yourself and and dig in and um yeah ha- having to to not being given any rules uh and and being given a, a blank canvas a lot um is is something that once you get used to thinking that way you often And I think about this today. Like, I I approach problem solving in exactly the same way today that I did when I was 17. Um, It's just now it's like, oh, okay. You know, it's this obviously dovetails well into our conversation about me being in the Seattle Times. Um, You know, in 2017, I had this opportunity to start, uh, or I had this idea to start a record label uh, to help out you know, young Seattle hip hop artists. And so right. I just did it. And, you know, I didn't, I didn't ask permission. I didn't say, Oh, how, how would I go about doing this? Who should I talk to? I just sort of decided to, to start it and, and I did it. Um, and, and yeah, I think about that in the context of sort of how, how I, when I went to school, that was sort of how school started. But okay. you, you know, you had a different question about education and and well, university just, and so on. So we can talk about
0: yeah, that as well. It's just it's fascinating. So let's. But you brought you, you brought up hip hop and not asking permission, just going for it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: When did you get exposed to hip hop music? And I mean, were you exposed to it in in your youth, your adolescence? What, when when did hip hop become? a genre of music for you that you've found to be enjoyable.
1: It's funny. You know, I, someone recently joked to me that I'm actually, so I I was born in 1973 and uh, there's the, the origins of where hip hop came from. There's a whole bunch of mythologies and stories about those early Mm -hmm. days. Um, But the, one of the widely, widely agreed upon moments was uh, in 1979. um, The, Sugarhill Sugar Hill gang released Rapper's Delight. And right. that song was this massive international success. It was mm-hmm. 12 minutes long and it had guys talking over, over beats on the radio. And it was so novel and different. And yep. um, that was 1979. Uh, I was still a little young. And for me, when I was a teenager um, groups like public enemy and the beastie boys were sort of big in the charts. And, and mm-hmm. suddenly that was, an introduction to hip hop music for me. Um, you know, hip hop when I was that age was, was cool. Like there were cool kids who listened to that and I wasn't cool and I didn't listen to music like that at all. And in fact, I wasn't honestly, when I was 17, 18, 19, 20 years old, I wasn't that interested in hip hop music. Um, I was really interested in indie rock and grunge and, and sort of British shoegaze music and the, the things that were sort of, Uh, popular in my social sphere. Um, Okay. But it's funny, you know, I... So, I um, started looking at the opportunities to move from Canada to the United States in 2012. So, just to to quickly bridge high school to 2012, which is a period of 20 years or so, um, I... um, I went to high school. I went to university. Uh, in university, I took fine art um, and uh, I did drawing and painting, that sort of sort of thing. Um, I also took Japanese classes in university and uh, studied a lot of um, Japanese history and and things like Zen Buddhism and mm-hmm. um, Taoism and, and 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 Asian religions. Um, and then I got. Out of school, I was a bit lost for a while. I didn't really know what to do with myself. And um, I had an opportunity to work for a magazine. Um, there was a government program that that um, existed in Canada where a magazine could hire uh, someone out of university and the government would pay some of their initial... It was almost like an internship, but the government right. would pay you a small amount of money to to, and the employer got paid in order to employ a young person who's fresh out of school. And so I benefited from a, a government program to uh, give me a job, essentially, at this magazine. Okay. It was someone who was starting a new um, publication, and they had a skeleton t- crew. And so everybody kind of did everything. And um, I was doing everything from you know reading an article and then calling sources to make sure the quotes were correct to, Mm -hmm. um, doing some article writing to, um, because I had this background in fine art, I would, um, we would sometimes have to lay out our own stories for the magazine page. So we would have this, you know, this page layout software and, um, you would write this story and then you'd have to do an initial layout. And, and as I said, because I had an art background, I would always be like having suggestions of like, Oh, what if we put it over here, we can put a picture here and, what if we pulled the pull quote, we could be over here. And, and I sort of found myself um, more and more making side deals with some of my coworkers where, you know, they would do the writing of the stories and I would lay out everybody's story. And, and at some point I I became a magazine designer and, um, but it it wasn't (laughs) something I went to school for. And it was something that I, um, I was good at and I had an aptitude for and, um, you know, because i had gone to school for fine art i understood color and layout and composition and and some of the basic sort of ideas that that go into a magazine page layout as much as anything um so i did that for a while and uh i made this transition in the magazine world from doing print magazine design where i was designing you know physical magazines that were sent to people's right. homes to the this transition that happened i guess this was sort of Two thousand and seven, two thousand and eight, was this 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 rise of magazine websites and <laughs> blogs and and Instagram and social media and Twitter and and publications were suddenly realizing that they had to think uh, multi-platform and multi-dimensionally because you couldn't just make a print magazine and expect that that was going to carry your. Um, business and your brand into the 21st century. So um, I happen to work at a big company that had sort of 10 or 12 magazine titles under one roof. And that company was starting a sort of nascent uh, website team who was going to be responsible for designing um, websites for all of these magazines. And I made this (laughs) jump in my career to, to being sort of one of the digital designers to create these websites. Um, and that was a fascinating job because it, um, it, it was filled with these moments of saying, okay, you know, I I worked for say a, um, a city magazine. So one of the magazines that I I worked for that I I worked on the, um, on the publication was a magazine called Toronto life, which is much like, uh, Seattle Met or Seattle magazine or the stranger, it's sort of a Mm -hmm. arts and culture magazine that covers, um, what's happening in Toronto. So this might be everything from restaurant reviews to highlights of arts and entertainment, interviews with celebrities who live in Toronto, um, you know, big feature profiles on the politics and sort of the the scene of what's happening in just in Toronto, in in, in the life of people who live in Toronto, real estate and so on. Mm -hmm. Um, And one of my first jobs um, on the digital side was to take this magazine, which was a monthly hundred page magazine and think about how do we create an experience that can be daily and uh, sort of quick hit content out of this publication. And um, you know, we started looking at some of our, our, our metrics and who was coming to the site and when were they coming? And the one thing that we really realized early on was that m- most of the traffic we were getting on the website was to our restaurant reviews and people were coming to the site around three o'clock in the afternoon. And they were spending about 10 minutes on the site. And hmm. and so, you know, one of the, the big insights that that I had that we implemented was let's, instead of trying to take this magazine and and cut up all these pieces of this magazine and put them all onto the internet, which is what was done at the time, was let's double down on restaurants and food content. And, and let's focus on having a daily blog of restaurant food information. We'll update it every day at 3 o'clock. And because we know people are coming to the site during this period of time and will have small hits like here's great places that that you should eat at dinner for dinner tonight. Here's Mm -hmm. here's great places that, you know, here's here's a profile of a new chef that is making really interesting things that you should check out. And this was a huge success uh, at the company. And and then we had to sort of take the same model and apply it to other publications, whether it was a wedding publication or a, a fashion magazine or. Um, you know, a a publication that was in the sort of book industry doing kind of like a publisher's weekly and sort of, Mm -hmm. again, trying to think about how do you take these magazine brands and rethink of them as digital properties and how someone might want to interact with
0: them online. Let me ask you something. Sure. uh, In this, this stable of magazines that the company had, were you able to find something like the three o'clock people are coming to look for restaurant recommendations for every topic?
1: By and large, I would say so. Okay. And, and oftentimes okay. that was really a starting place for us because you didn't, you know, there's, on one hand, you're looking for these signals in your traffic that will tell you where, where's a good place you can invest time and energy to mm-hmm. emboldening and strengthening this, off, this audience. Um, but then you'd also have moments where you'd say, okay, we want to build up our real estate profile. And we don't have a lot of people coming to the site right now for real estate content. Mm-hmm. So we need to think about how do we build that vertical for this brand? Is that something where we need to um, align with you know, a local real estate association and bring in you know, real estate experts who can, who can talk about some of this material? Can We, you know, we did a lot of partnerships with, with other uh, businesses that were doing things online in the same way. Um, that we're having success and that maybe would allow us to, um, kind of grow some synergies based on working with sort of, you know, smart partners. Um, okay. but yeah, we, we did this for, um, as I said, there were, there were 12 magazine titles, um, that we worked on over that time. And one of them was actually an online only property. So that was, a again, it didn't have a print publication to sort of base the the thinking on, um, but you know, I did that for a while. Um, I was good at it. I ran this, this digital team it was about 30 people that, um, I oversaw. Um, and that was everything from designers to editors, to writers, to salespeople, to, uh, people who were doing the backend coding to make the websites work. Um, okay. and really trying to rally this, this, uh, whole company, because not only was this a, a building of a new business for the company to having this online material, but we thought about iPad apps and mobile editions and what are we doing on a, on smartphones, um, but also it was a huge cultural change that was happening um, at these publications, because for so long, the, the print publication had been the, the, the er, part of the brand it was the part that that you based everything off of and and we were finding that that we were discovering there were huge pockets of audience that were only ever engaging with the website or the social media and had never really bought the magazine and weren't interested in buying the magazine and so that was a whole other shift as well that was going on um at the time with what i was doing um but you know i i um so I, you asked this question at the very beginning about hip-hop and how did I get into hip-hop, and, yeah. and I seem like I'm the furthest I could be from that. But but what happened was that um, Toronto media is um, – I mean, Toronto's a big city. It's 6 million people um, live in Toronto, so it's – Is it that big? Yeah, it's – it's. Um, the, I had
0: no idea. I didn't know that 6 million people lived in Canada.
1: Oh, yeah. The population <sighs> of Canada is 38 million, so – Oh, and okay. actually in the in the hierarchy of cities uh the largest city in north america is mexico city uh, Yes. and then the second largest city is new york third mm-hmm. is la fourth is toronto uh, fifth is chicago and sixth is houston so so that's I sort would, of where toronto fits in the in the ranking I would
0: not I would I I would have thought if you would have asked me you know pick us pick a u.s city that's approximately the same size as toronto my honest answer would be seattle mm, yeah. I, would, I i for some reason i've 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 associated those two now obviously incorrectly so there we go once again i'm admitting my lack of intelligence to the uh, to the world oh well no you know um,
1: it's it's funny because i i would say um a lot of people i meet in seattle um e- when i say i'm canadian immediately assume that i'm from vancouver or that i'm yeah. somehow connected to the west coast of canada uh, mm-hmm. and and vancouver is i think maybe two million people um it's it's also quite a bit larger than seattle but it's, mm-hmm. um, but it's small by the comparison to um, Toronto, Toronto or Montreal. Um, so.
0: Oh really? You know? Yeah. Okay. Well, well, let's 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 rope this back into Washington State. Uh, sure. They, no, nothing, nothing against Canada. Don't I mean like that. No, I, no. Yeah, I, yeah. US, yes, yes, <laughs> um,
1: I wanted to get to your question, which was really how did I get involved in hip hop, and that's that's yeah. where I wanted to get to. Was that um, the the Toronto media scene uh, looks a lot to new york city for um you know ideas direction kind of vision like there's always kind of a uh looking to new york for what you know what the gold standard is and at some point in my career i reached a point in toronto where moving to new york city was the next obvious step um in terms of building my career and growing my career and uh so i went to new york um in 2012 and I was really struck by hip hop music when I was in New York, and to me, um, hip hop is something I very much associate with the United States. To me, that okay. there's like a, a a directness and an honesty and a uniqueness to hip hop that is, you know, it's like people say about. You know, jazz being an art form, a music form for that is unique to the United States, and for me, hip hop is similarly something that that I so deeply associate hip hop with the United States and living in the United States and trying to understand life in the United States. Um, I find hip hop can be a good way to do that, um, okay. and so I became really interested in in the in the music and the art form as as it connected to the country and as it connected to me living in the U.S. and trying to sort of navigate being a foreigner and being being Canadian and having a very different upbringing and and so on as compared to um, someone who might have grown up here in Olympia or Tacoma or Seattle. Um, you know, I found hip-hop was a way for me to, to understand um, the life and struggles of people here uh, in a different way.
0: Okay. So that's, okay. That's fascinating because yeah, that's, that's, I could, I'll just leave it. I guess what I'm trying to say is I've spent my entire life living in the state of Washington. Sure. So I am acknowledging that I'm coming at this from a very small (laughs) lens uh, of, you know, I've not lived, I've not lived in New York. I haven't lived in Toronto. I haven't. I've lived in Seattle and I'm now living in Wenatchee and yeah. that's very, they're both very different.
1: Uh, I've lived all over. I lived, I lived in France for a while. Um, that was another, oh, wow. another place I lived for a bit. I lived in Quebec for a while. Uh, I lived on the top end of Vancouver Island briefly. Um, yeah. I've, I've, uh, I, I've tried to move around. I've been a bit nomadic, both my, this sounds very sad, but both my parents passed away when I was in my early 20s. And so um, I have always felt a bit nomadic in my life mm-hmm. ever since then because I I haven't had the the call of home in the same way that mm-hmm. someone who's, whose parents who may still be alive would have um, towards, towards feeling like you've got to go back to your hometown because I don't have anyone in my hometown. Um, okay. Uh, living there anymore, so it's 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 been for me. It's always been about moving around to see new places. Has has been a big part of my identity. Um, okay. I I found my way to Seattle at the start of 2013. So at the end of 2012, I was in New York, and um, I got a phone call out of the blue from Amazon, and um, it, you know it's it's an experience that is is very unique in that it's not unlike Pete Carroll calls you up one day and says, Hey, uh, you know, we just traded Russell Wilson and we need a quarterback. You want to come be quarterback for the Seahawks? Um, it's, it's an experience not unlike that where Amazon just calls you one day out of the blue and says, Hey, we saw you, you've been doing cool things in Canada and we saw you won a bunch of national awards. And we, we want you to come work on this team of all stars that we're putting together to work on, Kind of this big media project, and what do you think? Um, so, so that brought me to Seattle. It was, it was, um, you know, Amazon. You know, tries to hire the the best that they can find you know, all around the world, and and you come here. And when I when I first arrived at Amazon, um, you know, I didn't, I'd never really been to Seattle. I, I didn't know anything about this place. Um, and uh, I remember one of my coworkers was was really excited as we were building this team that was going to work on a big video project. Um, we were building what was essentially Amazon YouTube, sort of a, a short video hub for all of Mm -hmm. this video content that Amazon has. Um, and, and this is things like, uh, product reviews that exist on product pages or, um, you know, marketing videos that might be from Roomba or, uh, Samsung or some company, like, there's all this, this huge volume of video that exists all throughout the Amazon ecosystem Um, Mm -hmm. is primarily about products and, and what people love and don't love about products, unboxing videos, and, and so on. And, and there was this initiative that I was brought here to work on was to try to make sense of all of this video content. Um, And my background in media, and sort of working in these large projects and trying to make sense of how to how to think about a brand, um, was what, uh, was, uh, the main appeal for Amazon to bring me in to work on this project. Okay. Um, and, uh, but one of my coworkers who, as we were building this team was probably 50 people or so on this team, um, hung flags in our workspace for all of the countries that everyone who's working on this team were from. And so we had, we had flags from Ukraine and we had flags from China and we had flags from India and Pakistan and, uh. Um, Malaysia. And it, it was wild to, it really felt that first team, it really felt like, like being in the Olympics. Like I, I was, mm-hmm. you know, yet another person who was from Canada who, you know, had arrived to work on this project. And um, we they were, the company was assembling, as I said, a little United nations of, of ec- people who had experience or expertise in this space and they thought could help with you know creating this project and making this successful. Okay. Um. So so that was interesting because my first experience of Seattle was extremely uh, international, in many ways, um, which is I think a big contrast for for the experience of people who who are from here. And I think probably like yourself would probably have a different take on Seattle as as no, not a little. Pardon?
0: Yeah, I, I would. I agree. A, a little. Yeah, we probably think of it as more. Uh, uniform okay. homogenous maybe yeah so well let me ask you this question so you find hip-hop to be a, a uniquely U.S. thing sure right? so I think that's kind of changing your words a little bit so the hip-hop scene in New York you come to Seattle how does Seattle how does Seattle's hip-hop scene in your opinion, compare with what you were, what you were experiencing in New York?
1: Well, you know, it's funny. So one of the things I wasn't in New York city for very long, um, but I was, I was in Bushwick, uh, in this part of the city that was kind of the Williamsburg, Bushwick, Brooklyn thing that was happening Mm -hmm. was happening right when I was there. And there were all these really amazing, um, concerts that would happen on like building rooftops where Mm. you had to know someone and then they would tell you and there'd be a password or there would be some back staircase. You'd have to know where the staircase was to get up on the rooftop to go to the show. And, you know, it it wasn't (laughs) that it was a a secret thing and you had to pay a $50 cover or something. It was just, these were parties that were happening that were a little bit off the grid. And, and the music scene was just really vibrant and alive. And when I came to Seattle, I was, was interested in finding that here in the city, and and I wasn't sure what was happening in Seattle. Um, you know, as I said, I worked in Toronto for a, a big city magazine where we would cover restaurants and um, we would cover arts and entertainment, and we would cover sort of what was happening culturally in the city, not unlike how the Stranger does, or Seattle Met, or the Seattle Times does here in Seattle. And so I found myself really digging in, looking for what were the things that were happening that, that were, you know, culturally really exciting in Seattle um, at the time. And, Mm -hmm. and it's funny, you know, you have somebody like um, uh, Macklemore and Ryan Lewis, whose song Thrift Shop had just come out and they were suddenly, pardon?
0: Wow. I just, I just realized you moved to Seattle that, that year, That's right. It was <laughs> okay, yeah, that,
1: and, yeah, and that song okay. was blowing up. Like everybody was like, that was, you know, and he was representative like it or not of what the Seattle hip hop scene was. And, yeah. um, you know, I saw Macklemore and, you know, he's, he's a very, uh, uh, he works a lot on his craft and he takes it very seriously. Um, and, um, you know, I saw Macklemore, perform at you know like a, a club like chop suey in front of like 50 people and mm-hmm. and it was um it was that at that time when that song was just starting to to blow up and and things were happening and there was this brief light that was being shone on seattle and and the seattle hip-hop scene um although and this this happened with mix a lot with, with his, uh, you know, I like big butts song as much as it happened with Macklemore with thrift shop is that the, the lens, the focus wasn't on the scene writ large, but this one person and this argument that that person was, was emblematic of everything that was happening here, that, that, and I, I found in many ways what I was interested in wasn't Macklemore and wasn't the success that he was having, but were all of these other musicians that were also making music in the Northwest who weren't necessarily getting the the big uh, spotlight that Macklemore was getting. Um, and, and I found myself really interested in starting to go to um, hip hop shows and just sort of see what was happening in and around um, the Seattle scene. So this was, this is 2013. So there was um, artists like uh, Gifted Gab and Jar of D and um... Uh, Stas the Boss and uh, Sassy Black, they they were a group called The Satisfaction um, who were on Sub Pop and they had just released an album called Earthy that was really exciting. Um, Shabazz Palaces is another group on Sub Pop who was releasing music around that time and represented a sort of alternative to Macklemore, um of what mm-hmm. was happening in the, in the hip-hop and the rap scene. And so I started going to a lot of these shows. Kung Fu Grip was a big band that was... Um, uh, it was a it was a duo of um, these two rappers, Greg Cipher and Fish, who were making kind of this really high energy kind of jump off the stage, stage diving kind of hip hop music that was really exciting. They just have these this crazy high energy live show and would just be kind of the, the show would sort of knock you off your feet when you went to see them. And and I, so I started going to a lot of hip hop shows um, and. And it's funny, I started around that time because I I was a newcomer to the city and I didn't know anyone um, really outside of a handful of people I was working at Amazon with. Uh, My wife and I moved here, um, as I said, and we were sort of newcomers to the city. And so I started going to hip hop shows and I I started an Instagram account because around 2012, was Instagram was fairly new as well. Um, And I started an Instagram account primarily for my friends and family back in Toronto to kind of update on here's what I've got going on in Seattle. Like here's 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 uh, my wife and I's life, um, what we're doing in Seattle. And as I went to hip hop shows, I would film these these little clips from the shows and post them online. And this funny thing happened in that first year was that um, there, I guess, weren't a lot of other people online covering or talking about this music. And the artists who would, you know, I, when I would post a video of a show, someone would uh, see that video on Instagram and I would have tagged the artists that were playing at the show. And those artists would then repost my video to their own feeds. And, and suddenly I, I became this um, person that a lot of local rappers and people in hip hop started following because they okay. saw me as someone who was like a journalist covering their local hip hop scene or something. And so I, I became this person that was like, Oh, you've got to, you got you to gotta follow Gary, or you've got to invite Gary to your show. And so I started getting, you know, DMS from rappers, I didn't know saying, Hey, I'm playing a show in this back alley behind an auto garage, you got to come to my show. And Uh, you know, so I started going to these, these hip hop shows because I got invited to them and, and sometimes they were really fun. And sometimes it was, you know, I mean, I'm 49, I have a gray beard. Um, sometimes like I would show up and I would be at least 20 years older than anyone at the show. And, and so I really stood out. And so people not only, uh, was I being invited to the show, but what, if I did show up, like everyone knew I was there because I was the the weird old guy who was standing at the back. And it's like, why, who's this guy? Why is he here? Um, yeah. but you know, I was just, right. I was just interested to see what was going on in Seattle and, and as I said, participate where I could in, um, this, you know, creative community that, that was so exciting to me.
0: Well, let me ask you something. You just described yourself as this weird old guy. And if you were 20 years older, how, how well were you received by the community? Uh,
1: surprisingly well, actually, and that's and that's the thing. Like I, I am extremely honored by by how welcoming everyone was to me coming out to shows. And I mean, part of that is I think because I was approaching this a little bit because I have a background in media that I was showing up with a camera in hand, and mm. and as someone who had uh, an increasingly larger social media presence of of people who were following me. So, so, you know, getting your photo with me or me filming you at your show had the potential to raise your profile um, in the scene. So I think everyone was really excited by my presence uh, when I would show up at at things. Um, uh, Yeah. I don't know if that answers your question exactly, but.
0: Yeah, it does. um, Well, because let's, let's, let's be honest, you and I don't look like a typical hip hop fan. No, that's true. Uh, I just don't. And
1: um, yeah, it's funny though. I think, uh, I mean, I I always really made a point and continue to like, I'm not at some level. I'm, I'm just there as a fan. And one of the things that I, Mm -hmm. I regret or I miss uh, is there was a time when I was a little bit more anonymous. Like I used to go to a show and I could just, stand in the audience and enjoy the music and enjoy the experience of being there and then leave when I wanted to. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, that was 10 years ago that I, that I started doing this. Um, mm-hmm. today, you know, I am someone that most of the artists in the scene know who I am because I'm the guy who has a record label and I'm the guy who, you know, had I've made a movie I've made, uh, I've I've been covering this, these, these things on Instagram for 10 years. And, and I sometimes miss the anonymity of being able to just go to a show and be in the audience and watch the show and leave. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's, and that's something that has changed a lot over the years. Um, you know, there, there was a time though, the pandemic has also, I think, changed a lot for a lot of us. And, you know, there was a time in 2019 when, you know, I, I would show up at a show and the people on stage would be shouting me out in the audience like, hey, Gary's here. Everybody cheer because Gary's here. Or I had a rapper at one point who made up a verse about me and then got everyone in the audience to rap it along with him while he was doing the song. Like, it's it's funny, like this, these experiences, uh, you don't really I didn't I didn't anticipate or sign up for any of this. It's just sort of what <laughs> happened. Um and, uh, but you know, that's, it's wonderful. It's, it's a, it's a life turns out in ways you don't expect. And sometimes you just roll with it and see where it takes you. Um, uh, yeah, you know, I, so I started this, this Instagram account and I covered it on, things on Instagram for a long time. And, um, you know, in, in 2017, uh, because at the end of 2016, I you know there was a big federal election. And uh-huh. uh, you know, Trump was elected. I think much to everyone's surprise, um, or mm-hmm. to a certain amount of surprise. And I think there was a real uh, moment of reflection for a lot of people living in the United States between, you know, the the election night on in November and and the start of January when uh, Trump was inaugurated to really think about like what. What does it mean to live in the United States? What does it mean to to be here in, in the Northwest? And um, uh, around that time, I had been talking with a lot of artists about this idea of making a compilation album that we could make that would be a, a kind of celebration of everything that was uh, great about Seattle hip hop. You know, to me, there seemed to be such a scene of artists that I had been going to see for a number of years and people who had, you know, I guess represented this 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 not McLemore uh, contingent of, of people mm-hmm. in hip hop in the Northwest. Um, and uh, at the same time, we were also looking for, how do we respond to how we're feeling about, about this Trump election? And, and so that all of those reasons became a catalyst to start an album called, um, which at one time was called, it said Songs from Crane City, but ultimately became called Solar Power. Um, which was a compilation vinyl that I put together with 14 um, uh, rappers and artists here in, in the Northwest, which was intended to be a, at first a kind of a Seattle response to the Trump uh, uh, election win and Mm -hmm. uh, became less, less about that and less of a kind of angry response to something and more, uh, you know, one of the people I got a chance to work with on that project um, was a, a painter uh, named Ari Glass. He is a very, very talented um, uh, visual artist here in the Northwest. And Ari uh, has done a number of paintings, but um, he was also part of the group of artists who painted Black Lives Matter um, here -hmm. in Capitol Hill in Seattle, um, beside Cal Park. It was a big sort of 60 foot wide 20 Mm -hmm. foot high black lives matter, whatever the dimensions are. I probably got those wrong. Um, and Ari was one of the artists who painted that black lives matter piece, but I worked with him in 2012 and, um, he painted a a painting that became the cover of this solar power compilation. And, and when I talked to him, he was the one who really said to me, you know, instead of, instead of focusing on this negative, this, like we're, we're upset that Trump was elected or we're, uh, we're upset about what this means for, um, you know, about America and about the future. He said, what if we make this album really a celebration of all the things that are great about the Northwest? And, and he was the one who titled the album solar power because he, at the time when we were talking, it was like February and it was, it's February is the hardest time in the Northwest because it's been dark for so long. and, and you feel like spring is coming, but it's not there yet. And you're you're waiting and you're waiting for spring. And and then that first moment of sun that you get, you get about a week in at the late February, and then and then it really kicks into high gear in April and then uses it's just blue skies until October. And and he was saying, you know, there's that moment, that solar power moment when you get hit with that sun and you go, Oh, I remember why it's great to live here. And then it's just you're in this wonderful, like warming sense of, of, uh, how great, uh, the Northwest is and solar power was, was really born out of that idea. And that was where the cover, um, the cover painting is a kind of a whole, uh, kind of a, he, Ari works in a lot of gold leaf with his work. And Mm -hmm. so the cover art is this beautiful, um, you know, solar kind of sun that is painted with all these little hoops and, and circles. Um, and all with gold leaf, and it's it's a, the actual painting is a three feet square. Uh, it is hanging in my living room, um, oh, and, and we um, we took that that painting and scanned it and and used that as the cover art for this album. Um, I'm,
0: and, I'm on your website. Sure, there's a photo of somebody holding. I think that's the album. Is there a little? In the upper corner, it's blue. Yes, There's that's a correct. Blue tri- that is correct. Oh, no, it's, yeah, it's a really cool, it's really cool artwork.
1: Yeah, absolutely, it's and very cool. And we really wanted that album to be a celebration, as I said, of what was great uh, about music and and art in the Northwest. So, Solar Power had fourteen artists on it. Um, I made a conscious decision; I wanted seven women and seven um, men on the art on the album. Mm-hmm um women are a big part of the northwest hip hop scene that's also something that i think is is different about music here um at least in the scene that uh, that i notice is is the the role of women um and uh the role of queer artists in the the mainstream hip hop scene is also uh something that you note you take note of um and and certainly wanting to celebrate uh less mainstream voices. I think there's an opportunity to, to put a shine on, you know, there's, there's lots of people in music. We see this in music, whether it's in rock and roll or, or anything else um, hip hop as well is that there's a, there's a mainstream sound and there's a lot of people that are trying to emulate that mainstream sound. And, um, so i i really wanted to focus on artists that were doing something unexpected and different and something you maybe wouldn't have heard before and and so the the solar power compilation was a real focus on that and and on celebrating 14 voices um and people who you might not have otherwise uh heard of or or know about their music and um and that that album um was a huge success we we debuted it at the beacon hill um summer block party so in beacon hill there was a block party uh done by the station coffee shop that year um okay that's a big coffee shop in beacon hill that is a kind of hub for the community and um most of the artists that were on that compilation played at that block party and um, we pressed up a thousand records, and the record itself is a bright orange color. It's like the sun when you pull it out of the sleeve. And um, it is intended to be an album that you can put on in the darkest days of winter and feel that glow of of summertime sun and know that it's coming. Um,
0: why why albums? Mm. I mean, because first off, that's not meant to be a critical statement. No because I love I love the idea of vinyl. But why what was the inspiration for for you to go bring this genre into vinyl?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you know, part of what I was trying to do and you know, I think there's um a little bit of the work that I do with Crane City Music is towards preservation. Like there's a sense of there's there's music happening in the city and there's a legacy of music happening in the city, and I and I personally see the way that that uh, people, you know, will covet a a jazz record from the '50s. Or um, someone I worked with early on as a distributor was a company called Light in the Attic, and they're based here in the Northwest. And Light in the Attic focuses on uh, compilations of scenes from um so you, you they'll have a record like uh Nigerian folk rock from the 70s and this will be okay. a compilation of, of that music from that place um or a compilation of uh, psychedelic rock music from Japan from you know the 80s or whatever the the right. stick five words together and and you've got a scene you know <laughs> Beijing punk rock from the 2010s or you know minimal techno from germany from the, these sorts of compilations that i and that was part of what i was thinking about when i wanted to put this record together was what is the sound of seattle hip-hop circa 2017 and at the time we were making the record it was it was all new music but to think about this is something that someone 20 years from now is going to find this in a used bin and mm-hmm. we'll, we'll have a window into what um what is happening in what was happening in music at the time here in the Northwest. And, you know, it's funny, like vinyl is, is has, it, has had this interesting lifespan. And I think because I don't want to put this, like people have been putting music on vinyl records since the 1890s. Like this is a, a right. format that's been around for more than a hundred years. And, right. and in some ways there was a time in the uh, turn of the millennium when, you know, Napster became big and CDs were sort of the dominant format for music. And it seemed like vinyl had really had its day and, and vinyl never really died off. Like it, I think there was a lot of marketing efforts on the part of record labels to eliminate vinyl and um, push people to new formats to CDs. I mean, I, I remember myself in I know two thousand and three, two thousand and four. I pretty much got rid of all my vinyl records, and I rebought everything that I owned on vinyl on CD because vinyl was dead, and we were all listening to CDs now. And then, you know, the over time, I sort of found my, my way back to it, and I find it's it's of all of the various music formats that exist, it's the one that continues to uh, thrive. I mean, in, even in 2022, I think more vinyl albums were sold than CDs or cassettes or mm-hmm. any other physical format. Um, you can buy the new Harry Styles record on vinyl and the new Taylor Swift record on vinyl. Like there's there's this, the new Beyonce record just came out on vinyl. Um, and so I think, you know, that's something that's been interesting is is the way that i that, that in many ways the the industry it feels like more than anything tried to end vinyl's reign over the last 10 or 15 years and and failed and vinyl continues to persist um
0: do you think I got I got a couple of thoughts on this sure right, just let me let me bounce these off no, of you. It's fine. two two thoughts number one is the act of listening to an album mm-hmm. requires you to you know, take it out of the, out of the sleeve, put it on the turntable, put the stylus on the, on the record. You know, you're you're at, you're an active participant and you're going to listen versus streaming something on Spotify or, you know, there's just some more, there's this more physical connection to the, to the process to me. this is the way I view it. Yeah. Is that if I'm going to listen to a, a record, of course I'm old. So I say records and albums, they, you know, somebody, a third of my age, they don't even really know what CDs are. And, but That's right. I, I think there's something tangible to an album versus a CD. Now I like you got rid of all my albums and replaced them all with CDs. And I regret that choice. But when I go and buy vinyl now, it's not uncommon for me to have the album, on display versus a CD that's just stacked up on the shelf. Okay. So that's one comment is to me, I think we actually more of an active listening and more of an, in, we're present during the, the process of consuming mm-hmm. the music versus it's earbuds in the background while we're doing the dishes. Number two, I don't disagree with you at all about the record industry trying to kill off vinyl, but do you think they've been able to position vinyl as the higher end alternative? Because albums are selling for what? 30 bucks now a pop.
1: Yeah, I mean, those are, those are two great observations. I think there is, it's funny, like, I, so I worked in in media for a while, I worked in the tech industry for a while. And, you know, I think sometimes that, like, I look at streaming, and someone said to me once, well, you know, why would you do vinyl records when you can do streaming, like streaming so much more efficient, and I'm like, Why, when have I ever listened to music and wished it was more efficient? Like it's, there's a there's a sense of like, what what is the experience that you are looking for? So here, I'm gonna give you an example of this. Uh, there's been an ongoing debate that shows up every so often online. It's And I guess various, cause I worked in, in online video for a while. So I pay attention sometimes to what trends are in online video. And there was a discussion online for a while that Netflix was going to roll out a button, not unlike with podcasts, where you could watch shows at one and a half times speed or twice speed. In the same way with a podcast, you can push a little button and you can listen to this podcast at a much faster clip than normal. And this was a question of like whether or not Netflix was going to roll out this feature. And at some level you have to ask yourself why like if if i'm trying to i understand the desire to binge watch tv is something that we all do but i don't need to watch if i'm just trying to get through game of thrones and i can watch it all at double speed is am i having the experience like i don't i think efficiency is a weird model that we apply to things like music and say that efficiency makes something better um and and that's something that I, I think about a lot with vinyl like we you said it yourself like there's a ritual to i go to the store i buy this thing i hold it in my hand it has weight it there's i have to pull out the sleeve and and i have to take this record and put it on this turntable and and ideally my turntable has to be level and I have to put this little, this little arm on the turntable. Like there's a level of engagement with what I'm doing that is so different from the experience of pushing a play button and saying, now I can go do the dishes or something else. And I do find that is that I would work with a lot of people at Amazon um, who were coders who would spend their time writing computer code all day. And, and loved wearing headphones and listening to music but they it wasn't to listen to the music it was to tune out everything so they could just focus nice. on writing computer code and the music right. for for someone like that is is a is the goal of the music is to be white noise and and to me like i i have a, a kind of a criteria like a, if i put a record on and i'm and i'm doing house cleaning and I keep stopping what I'm doing because the music is so good. Like, that's that's a sign of something that's worth paying attention to. And if I clean my house and forget the records on, then, then it's, it wasn't really an experience I was having. I don't know if that makes well, sense. Okay,
0: but, it does. But but here's the other thing about, the, the, about an album. Yeah. Is it's a way for, in my opinion, it's a way for a, a fan of an artist to... If you go see Macklemore in concert, let's just Mm -hmm. say, right. You're going to go see Macklemore and you buy a concert shirt. It's a way of it's social proof that you are in that club. I know that's true. Macklemore. I'm aware of Macklemore and an album. Of course, the concert shirts are more than 30 bucks, but like, I know I went to the last grateful dead shows in the Chicago, in Chicago at soldier field Mm -hmm. when they played in 2015 And I think I spent more money on merch than I did on my three days of tickets. Okay. So I bought, you know, grateful dead merch at a concert and then had to lug it around the concert. It wasn't a real smart experience. (laughs) Um, And I did that three days in a row. Um, But the point is I was happy to give them my money to wear that badge of, you know, I'm part of that club sure so you buy a concert shirt you're part of that club but but if you buy an album I I would wonder okay so you printed a thousand of these 2017 collaborations Yes, the the solar power compilation I I wonder how many of them never have been played
1: yeah that's entirely possible